It's on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm saying welcome back because we've got John Kiriakou back in the studio from his many adventures overseas, oh. his extremely exciting trip oh boy. to Saudi Arabia. We, we are going to hear about uh, in just a second. Uh, but I'll tell you what we're going to be talking about. Man, I haven't sat in front of this microphone in a while. You and know, I'm I, like, where did it I actually that? watched Who's the show a couple times this thing around? Mm-hmm. when I was gone, and I saw that you uh, you were over on this so side. So I can see the engineers. That's, that's what I figured. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wave my hands at them, wink and stuff. It's fun. Right. Um, after we get uh, John's travelogue, Saudi travelogue, we are going to talk about uh, what I think are some interesting events happening in Azerbaijan and our media. We talked about the EU's new oil and gas deal with Azerbaijan, or I guess it's just gas. Um, but there's there are a lot of meetings going on a with lot. those countries and some other multinational flurry, organizations. You call it a flurry. It's a bunch of intelligence meetings in Armenia. Uh, very potentially interesting. We are also going to talk about what might come out of the meeting between Russia, Turkey, and Iran today. We will talk about American plans to force allies to hand over biometric data on their citizens. We will talk about a very scary new report on the state of the Atlantic Ocean. I think I mentioned this on the show yesterday. Uh, We're going to talk about the Pulitzer Committee saying they, they found nothing wrong with the awards that they gave for all that Russiagate reporting. Uh, that led nowhere ultimately, but sure, yeah, fine. Uh, And we are going to uh, follow up yesterday's conversation about the collapse of the Democratic Party by checking in on the state of the GOP and what uh, they are preparing for in the midterms and in 2024. Although I I do hate it when we start looking that far. We fall into the trap of just focusing on the next race. Other countries think we're crazy for this. Yeah. Other countries don't don't have years long campaigns. No, not at all. It is very stupid. So apologies, but we're going to do a little bit of it. Um, and I also I have an update on on Google yeah. fake news and alerts because you guys remember. I guess it was last week when we had the new hack of Hunter uh, of Hunter Biden's iCloud, mm-hmm. I think, right. and we got some new photos, mostly showing. The same old thing. (laughs) Um, But uh, many people, including myself, noticed that when you went to look for it, you got an alert. Like if you put in, you know, Hunter Biden, iCloud hack or whatever into Google, you got this strange new alert that says it looks like these results are changing quickly and uh, suggesting that, you know, you check the sources and whatever. So today I wanted to follow up on a headline that had caught my eye about Ilhan Omar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ilhan Omar calling for Joe Manchin to be removed from his role as chair of the Energy Committee. A completely reasonable proposition, <laughs> I'm going to say, on her part. So I typed into Google, Omar calls for Manchin, and I got the same results. Yeah. These results are changing quickly. If the topic is new, it can take time for reliable sources to publish, uh, you know, accurate information. Pretty sure she made this call on Sunday. And, uh, you know, I, I was looking for the one truth out article that I saw in it. So it's, I don't understand what I don't understand what the the deal is. I, Ilhan Omar is actually, you know, quite a controversial figure and the subject of a lot of actual fake mm-hmm. news. Yes. Uh, and so maybe yes. that's what it is. But maybe it's that it mentioned Ilhan Omar rather than what Ilhan Omar had actually said. So yeah. maybe that's it. The the algorithm just said, "Oh, Ilhan Omar's in this request." Let's like it's probably right wing propaganda. So we should warn 
the reader. Yeah. Maybe I'm cutting them way too much slack. I don't know, man. Weird. But okay, so we have a second sighting in the wild of the newest Google alert. Mm-hmm. Pretty exciting stuff. Pretty crazy, huh? Yeah. So I got back last night. Welcome. What a nightmare. Oh, First no. of all, let me tell you what my mistakes were. Okay. Going to Saudi Arabia. Number one. That was no. that was mistake well, number one. Being, Going now to Saudi we're being Arabia. Jingoistic. Um no, I'm I'm kidding. Uh, do you remember we had somebody on the show a week and a half ago, and I said, listen, a, a personal question. If you were going to Saudi Arabia, would you go through Muscat, mm-hmm. uh, Doha, Cairo? And I, I forget what he said. I went through Doha. Now, there was a direct flight. There's only one direct flight from Washington to Jeddah, and it's on Saudi Airways, mm-hmm. and I won't. I won't fly Saudi. Okay. They separate the men from the women. Yeah. Yeah. On the, on the flight. Yeah. Okay. And it's just too weird. I'm sorry. Okay. So I elected to go through Doha. Terrible mistake. It's so long. First of all, you're in coach, right? Right. So it's, it's a, it's a 16 hour flight. And, um, you just watch movie after movie after movie, but I never heard of any of these movies. Oh no. And I'm a movie guy. right Mm -hmm. so i'm watching these movies i never heard of they're like all direct to video and um and then i catch a you you fly all night long you arrive the next evening and uh then i catch a a flight to um to jetta now there were a couple of things in jetta that struck me immediately that were i thought pretty positive first of all only half the women were veiled. Shocking to me because the last time I was in Saudi Arabia and I hadn't been in Saudi Arabia since 1996. I had been, I hadn't been to Jeddah since 1991. Everybody was veiled from head to toe and they would, women would wear their glasses on the outside of their veils. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We used to call them MBOs moving black objects because they're just completely covered in black. It wasn't like that this time. Women were wearing, um, Beige, green, beige. blue. Oh, yeah, it's pretty, okay, yes. pretty incredible. Uh-huh. Um, most women didn't have their faces covered. They had their hair covered, but not their faces. I saw a guy. But you saw also women without their hair covered also? Yes. Cool. Shocking. Cool. Um, How did you control yourself? I know, right? I want to have sex with all of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole point of veiling. Oh, man, so, must have been a rough trip. <laughs> So uh, I, I saw a guy wearing shorts, like out in public. Yeah. When I was there last time, you'd get a good beating with a with a cane from the mutawain, the, the religious police. Mm-hmm. Women are now allowed to go to movie theaters. They're allowed to go to bowling alleys. Mm-hmm. Bowling is very popular in Saudi Arabia. Bowling is fun. I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, those things were shocking to me. What was more shocking was... When you're in a restaurant or a store during prayer time, they didn't close. When I had been there previously, uh, the call to prayer would come and everybody would have to get up from their table in the restaurant, go outside on the sidewalk. They shut the lights off. They pull the grates down. You wait until prayer time is over, about 15 minutes, and then they open everything back up and you go back in and sit down and finish your your meal. It's so weird. I know. But now it's like, 
You, you, to, like, you heard the call to prayer, but everybody just ignored it. Not to be judgmental of other like traditions or whatever that we might find inconvenient. I, it's just the idea of like leaving food on the table for 15 minutes and then yeah. coming back. Like what's been on it? You know, like yeah, that, that right. is what strikes me as weird. If you want to shut down for whatever reason, like go for Knock it. Knock yourself right? out. But that just seems like walking away from your soup. So this is a long way of saying that there really has been some reform in the social sphere mm-hmm. in Saudi Arabia. That's not to say that Mohammed bin Salman is not a murderous maniac because this past week while I was there, there was a report in the independent in London saying that that Mohammed bin Salman had discussed the idea of murdering King Abdullah. Um, so his father could become King more yeah. quickly. I mean, I mean, here's the thing. We were talking about this before the show, of course. Uh, The likes of Max Boot, for example, uh, a colleague of Jamal Khashoggi, was writing in the Washington Post not too long ago that, you know, you uh, that Mohammed bin Salman is not a cartoon villain, which I think is well, I think is sort of incorrect. He can be a cartoon villain and also do social reformer and saying, look, like there has been genuine change in Saudi Arabia and we would all, you know, call this change for the better. And I, you know, I absolutely believe that these changes are are uh, very meaningful for the lives oh, of, of people in Saudi Arabia, particularly for women. But yes. it is interesting to, you know, like how meaningful can any social reform be when it comes alongside uh, political repression, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, it comes as uh, MBS is, you know, accused of creating a political system that is even more closed and repressed, yes. in which power is even more consolidated. Because then, of course, in the aftermath, right, you have social reforms that depend on whoever is at the head of this extremely consolidated system, you know. And so it did. It also in some way reminded me of what is happening in the United States, which is we have a, we have a very socially free society, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, in, in many ways. And I think people would agree uh, that we all feel we have m- much less political power than people felt they had Absolutely. 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Totally. And agree. so, you know, sure, it's great to be able to go bowling and to have your hair show and to not be worried about being beaten by the religious police. Uh, but, you know, what what is the cause? The cost, uh, you know, political repression. And it's, MBS, of course, has not introduced uh repression into Saudi politics, right? It is a, it is a kingdom, a hereditary oh, yeah. kingdom run by one family. Right. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. I, th- I think that contrast is, is interesting and how meaningful and robust can these reforms be when, again, the, the people who they are affecting have absolutely no voice yes. in, in maintaining them or shaping them, right? These are all very top down. I wanted to add one other thing. I know our guest is, is uh, ready to start, but, um, one of the things that uh, I, I wrote about in a piece that I that I did from Jeddah, I don't recall if I mentioned it on the show on Thursday or not. But King Abdullah, I'm sorry, King uh, King uh, um, uh, Salman. Salman. I, I'm blanking. There've been yes. so many kings in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> King Salman, um, during his meetings with the president, kept an iPad on his lap. Did I mention that on the show yes, the other day? Yeah, it's so MBS can tell him yeah, what to say. Give him the answers. Give him the questions. MBS is clearly running the place. Mm-hmm. He already—they acknowledge that he runs the day-to-day operations of the kingdom, but it's it's more than that. Mm-hmm. His father's just not able. He's 86 years old. I'm his, surprised he could actually read something on an iPad and yeah, then repeat it. Seriously. You know, at, at rapid pretty, pace. Pretty impressive. Yeah. 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 So coming coming home was worse. 
Um, I had to check out of the hotel at noon, which is normal. They let me check out at two, just you know, because they were nice about it. And uh, but my flight wasn't until ten thirty p.m. So I went to the airport, got my ten thousand steps in in the uh, in the nice air conditioned uh, Jetta Airport, mm-hmm. flew to uh, back to Qatar, got to Qatar at uh, about one o'clock in the morning, and my flight didn't leave till eight thirty in the morning. So. I, what am I going to sleep on the floor? I'm 57 years old. So no. I just stayed up and, and wrote, you know, all night. Mm-hmm. And then um, we got on the plane at 830. We were delayed for it was inexplicable why we were delayed until 930 mm-hmm. and then flew home. There was a storm in Washington. So we circled central Pennsylvania for two hours. Oh, no, it's heartbreaking. You're so close, <sighs> man. Yeah. So 37 hours in in transit. That's a lot. I regularly would go back and forth between uh, the U.S. East Coast and East Asia, just oh, about as far as you can go. So yeah. you get used, you, you sort of get used to it, but it's not, it's never fun. It's no. never enjoyable. Uh, I guess before we move on, we should mention that the the first lady of Ukraine is in Washington, D.C. Yeah, she's D. in Washington today. today. She's going to meet Jill Biden. She's going to address Congress. She's going to talk about, you know, the humanitarian situation in Ukraine. You might see her motorcade cruising around the streets. Yep. Yeah, I saw somebody's motorcade today. It was pretty impressive, but it was such an obscure flag. I, I didn't have any idea who it was. I was going to ask you to describe it, but I'll ask you to do that off air. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I can try and guess it. Uh, I, I think we might as well take a quick break and bring on our next guest because I have some breaking news oh. I want to ask him about. Yeah. Okay. So we'll take a quick break here on Political Misfits. Uh, we're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We're going to be right back with some breaking news. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and I want to follow up on uh, this energy agreement by the EU to buy gas from Azerbaijan and uh, wonder why the foreign minister of Azerbaijan is today visiting NATO headquarters. We'll talk about a bunch of intelligence chiefs visiting uh, Armenia. Uh, We'll ask what might come out of this meeting between Russia, Turkey, and Iran in Iran today. Uh, I want to ask how seriously we should take these Chinese warnings that the U.S. should abandon its latest plans to sell weapons to Taiwan. And we have— some uh, some breaking news about potential changes to EU sanctions uh, against Russia that I think I will start with here. We're joined by Dr. David Wolalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant. He's a speaker, an author, a veteran, and a former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the host of Geopolitics and Conflict on YouTube, and his latest book, The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Making the Global Order, is out there. Dr. Wolalu, thanks for joining us. To be with you, Michelle. So I had a bunch of stuff planned, but just very quickly, since I I saw this uh, report come past my Twitter feed, uh, I'm seeing that the EU is preparing to create exceptions in its sanctions against Russia that would unblock assets at Russian banks linked to trade in food and fertilizer. Uh, I guess the idea is that the EU wants to make it very clear that there is nothing in their sanctions that is slowing the transport of grain out of Russia and Ukraine. And this comes as 
you know, it's expected that the president of Russia will talk about, you know, what could be done to facilitate shipments of grain through the Black Sea uh, in this meeting in Tehran today. And so I wonder, how, how do you take this news that the bank, uh, the, sorry, that the EU is, is preparing to perhaps uh, lift or uh, unblock some Russian assets in the interest of either liberating trade in food or fertilizer or, you know, making very clear that it's not the EU that is standing in the way of these movements? Or I may add a third option there, Michelle, or maybe because the governments in Europe are afraid now of the popular uprising mm. went on in a Dutch for the, with the farmer protests mm. in Poland. I mean, all this an indication of how the policies that the EU embarks on uh, are backfiring. And this is nothing new. Mm-hmm. And any, any common sense will success. You do not want to shoot yourself in the foot, economically yeah. speaking. So this is why the EU now is reversing gradually, because they don't want to lose face, one. And second, they don't want to upset the U.S. if they go against the U.S. Mm-hmm. This is why they're going to be doing it gradually. I was talking to some folks in, in Europe without naming locations, yeah. and that's exactly why they are doing what they're doing. They want to do it slowly because they are now asking the questions, is the fatigue regarding Ukraine going to be coming from the United States? Yeah. Because they are seeing how the population in Europe, and now, I mean, you heard about the shooting in Paris uh, yesterday, and the... Uh, the uh, the German farmers now are coordinating with the Dutch. Never mm-hmm. thought. <laughs> so this is, in my opinion, that's probably the reason why they are deciding to sort of okay, maybe it's time for us to start to reconsider certain aspects of the sanctions. Interesting. And so you know, if, if this prediction is correct, we will start to see little changes. Uh, coming in in sort of drips and drops over the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, That'll be interesting to watch because it is it is Europe that is suffering, I think, more as a result of this sanctions, uh, you know, the the sanctions in place against Russia. The United States, we're not obviously we're not completely isolated from them, but we don't have the urgent crises uh, that Europe is facing, particularly when it comes to energy. Uh, So, yeah, that'll be it'll be interesting to see if this is the beginning of a of a shift. Um, Dr. Walalu, I also wanted to ask what you think is going on with NATO, the EU, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. We spoke on the show yesterday about the EU signing a new agreement with its great friend and reliable partner, Azerbaijan, uh, the the ethical alternative to Russian energy. Uh, Now, Azerbaijan's foreign minister is at NATO headquarters to meet with NATO's secretary general. In the meantime, in Armenia, we have had the head of Iran's National Security Council stop by, followed by a surprise visit by CIA chief William Burns, uh, apparently the first ever visit to Armenia by an American intelligence chief. Uh, And then three days later, a visit from Russia's foreign intelligence minister. All of this happening in a span of about 10 days. And so, you know, I I am connecting these two chains of events because Armenia and Azerbaijan are, are locked in this mostly frozen conflict. Um, maybe they are only connected by this this conflict, but I wonder what you think is happening in these two cases, where we have the EU and NATO cozying up to Azerbaijan and all of these intelligence figures popping up in Armenia. What is going on? Well, there's a third option once again, Michelle. Great. The idea of the China-Russia gas pipeline that's going to start the construction in 2024, by which 
the gas going to go directly to China, but using Azerbaijan and also oil to the Mediterranean. So, the, 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 uh, in a nutshell, it has to do with the pipeline. Mm-hmm. That is the bottom line to it, because this is why the EU signed uh, the, the supply deal yesterday with Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. The, uh, as to the visit of the foreign minister to NATO, that one is based on a strategic uh, 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 some sort of uh, aspiration, if I may use the term. Because mm-hmm. what your listeners need to know is that there is a relationship between Azerbaijan and NATO. Mm-hmm. That just like that started way back, actually, if I'm not mistaken, 1993, 90, 1992, 1993, uh, somewhere mm-hmm. around that. So, and by which, uh, uh, when I say strategic partnership, it, it's basically for peaceful programs. It's another word of saying, well, we can sign a partnership with you. You are not a member, but we can bring our uh, forces. We can bring our weapons to your territory. And so right. That is the reason why it was down there. But also because, as, as I always said, and I am a student of history, that part of the world, the whole Central Caucasus area, whoever controls it, controls the direction of where the world is headed. Hmm. And what we are witnessing right now is that the U.S. is losing grip in that part, and Russia and China are pushing their presence over there. From Russia's perspective, is geopolitical. Mm-hmm. China's perspective is economic. Iran plays a role into this because Iran is part, uh, and Azerbaijan as well, are part of the uh, China's BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm-hmm. You can just see there are too many moving parts. That's why you see in the spy chiefs of the uh, Russia and Iran and U.S. going there to ensure that the pieces of the puzzle are where they need to be. So they're trying to they're trying to sort of uh, bolster their influence in Armenia. While also, you know, NATO cozying up to Azerbaijan, I just wonder what what's Armenia doing in the middle of this? Azerbaijan has this gas. Azerbaijan has this pipeline, uh, and has this gas deal. What's what's the what's the significance of Armenia? Well, it's because of as you mentioned earlier, Michelle, about the the conflict between the Armenian and Azerbaijan, which has been going on for quite a while. Didn't mm-hmm. Do with the area of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. That was the main thing. Mm-hmm. But that's not about just that. It's about also two other countries that have a really significant stakes into this. One is Turkey. The other one is Iran. Mm-hmm. And for both of them, especially Iran, Iran is going to be very, very suspicious of any military presence near Armenia. Right. And that is where that concern is. From Russia's perspective into this big picture is that uh, Turkey— some sort of hold the key to the idea of sort of facilitating, for example, the transfer of grain through the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. They play a role into this, knowing that Turkey still has a, some sort of a sway into influencing uh, the admission of Finland and Sweden into NATO. Mm-hmm. In fact, I just read this morning that they still can block the admission of those two countries, mm-hmm. uh, Nordic uh, states, into the alliance. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. me right there. Uh, Turkey is concerned. Yeah. 
Yeah, Turkey just uh, this morning or yesterday saying, uh, hey, Sweden, we've got our eye on you. We're not sure. It doesn't look very good right now what you're doing. So let's talk about let's talk about Turkey, because, of course, we have Russian President Vladimir Putin meeting uh, the leaders of Turkey and Iran today in Tehran with the nominal topic being Syria. Uh, but it is, of course, also expected that they will discuss Ukraine and in particular whether and how Ukrainian grain can be shipped again through the Black Sea. Uh, I'm also interested in the implications of this memorandum of understanding on oil and gas projects that Russia and Iran have apparently signed. So I, I want to start there with energy. Russia and Iran are both, of course, under very heavy Western sanctions. Uh, they've also signed this $40 billion MOU. And so I wonder how how significant is this? Uh, and what mechanisms they might use to implement it. Because what I am wondering is if this is a, a sort of another brick in building an alternative global financial infrastructure here. And, that, and you know, this brick will be how, how they trade for this energy pro these energy projects. Well, it's very, very important to, to see how, how this kind of deal is going to really influence the trajectory uh, economically and geopolitically. Mm -hmm. Remember, uh, uh, Iran, uh, there is a positive, there is a conversation, I, I, I'll use the term, conversation right now, as to whether Iran can join the BRICS, the Brazil, Russia, mm -hmm. India, China, and South, uh, South Africa. Well, as I said last time, and I remember mentioning this, within the BRICS, you get two major consumer uh, markets, India and China. And if the Saudis join in the BRICS as well, can you just imagine you have a, a Russia, which is a major oil producer, you got Saudi Arabia, a major oil producer, and if you add Iran to the mix, another major oil producers. You know, Iran, as we speak, sitting now on 20 million barrels that just on some uh, uh, freight in, in the sea because of the sanctions. So for Russia and Iran to work out this deal, he will push the agenda forward economically mm -hmm. and financially, since both countries are uh, on heavy sanctions by the U.S., but also China is going to join in. Mm -hmm. The whole global South is going to join in into the new financial mechanism. I, I, I'm, I'm seeing the trend of that coming. I've been seeing this coming for the last couple of years. And now, apparently, it's not apparently, it's the fact that the Ukraine crisis has precipitated this shift. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the U.S. will not be able to influence. Mm. Let's also talk about Ukraine and uh, the roles that Turkey and Iran have been playing, could be playing in this, in this conflict, uh, and whether we should expect any kind of agreement on Black Sea shipments soon. It will, it will be, but very, very limited because uh, Russia is not going to just give in to whatever the West is calling or whatever. The agreement with Turkey is going to have to be very, very uh, calculated, strategically calculated. Mm -hmm. Because the two countries also have another location where they have some issues, which is Syria. Right. Yeah. Talk to us about Syria, yeah. right? Uh, it, 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 Turkey's ongoing occupation of parts of Syria is going to be part of discussions here. Neither Russia nor Iran is uh, going to be very happy about that. Turkey has also, for some time now, been um, uh, forecasting, right, and and saying it is going to have a, announce a new offensive into Syria, but that has been delayed and delayed and delayed. And so I wonder, you know, if you think we should imagine that Russia and Iran will have any more luck getting Turkey out of Syria than anyone else has, or getting Turkey to continue to kick this can down the road of this proposed uh, offensive. 
Now they won't be they uh, Iran and Russia won't be able to get Turkey out. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have to work out the deal with them because remember what just happened at the UN Security Council uh, is that they wanted to extend the uh, the the aid through a, a region in in Syria called Bab el Hawar. Right, Bab el Hawar. That's very strategic for because you get terrorist groups that are now having some control of the aid, which they end up selling to the Syrians, mm-hmm. also has to do with the oil. So, and this is where you're seeing the Russians, Russians did not block that because they don't want to allow the aid. They, block, they wanted to block it because of the flow of weapons. Mm-hmm. What my concern was with the Ukraine conflict when it started, that I said, despite what we hear, that the West is going to be sending all these weapons to Ukraine, it might not end up in Ukraine, right. end up seeing it somewhere else. And this is exactly why Russia has vetoed uh, or, or challenged to the UN. Uh, actually, they agreed now to allow it for only six months. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to revisit that issue. So for Turkey, I don't see both Russia or Iran convincing Turkey to just get out. They're going to have to work out a deal because... Turkey has a stake also in what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, how important is it to have, you know, Turkey as a NATO member continuing to have these conversations with Russia and with Iran on consequential issues like this? I mean, Turkey has been a very interesting and complicated figure over the last couple of months. We've talked on this show many times about how successfully Turkey is using, uh, you know, the, the geopolitics of the moment to advance its own national interests. And so, you know, uh, on one hand, I'm no fan of the government of Turkey, right? I mean, I think it is, you know, they, it is useful to see them using the moment to their own advantage. It's not what I would usually wish to see them doing. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, should we, should we take it as positive that some member of NATO is still having high level conversations with Russia? Good question. That's, that's a sort of, uh, you can have it both ways. Mm-hmm. West, sort of. That's it, 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 it's the way it is for Turkey because they know and they understand uh, not only their strategic location, they can really influence the direction one way or another. Mm-hmm. That possibility of doing that, but also you're going to have to. Get, your listeners need to keep in mind that there are an election coming up soon in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Turkey will want to boost its image on the global stage. I mean, we all heard when they mentioned, hey, we're not going to allow Sweden and Finland. The whole world was like, Turkey doing that? Yeah. yeah. How much they can influence that? A lot. Europeans know that Turkey is a thorn on their side, but they don't have any other option. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, let's switch over to, to China now. I, I want to talk about some of these warnings that China has issued to the U.S. over the past day or two. The State Department a few days ago approved a hundred million dollars or so. I think maybe it was up to a hundred and eight million dollar arms sale to Taiwan, which honestly sounds like pretty small potatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, but Beijing yesterday demanded that the sale be scrapped. Uh, this is according to reports in Chinese media. The State Department today was defending its decision, saying the U.S. is obligated to furnish Taiwan with the means to defend itself. Uh, Beijing also expressed some displeasure at the idea of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi traveling to Taiwan next month. Pelosi was supposed to go in April. And I honestly, I honestly, John, think I thought she had visited in April. 
Or maybe I'm misremembering. She went somewhere. She did. I swear. I I remember her traveling somewhere. I remember being surprised. Yeah, she made a surprise trip. I swear it was to Taiwan. But now I the report I saw today was that it was canceled uh, because of a bout of COVID. Um, And so now she's she's intending to go next month. And China is saying the trip sends the wrong message and warned again about taking strong steps if the U.S. continues to go down the wrong path, as it terms, you know, this this increasing engagement with Taiwan. And so, you know, in particular uh, about this warning to to halt this arms deal, how Is this an escalation or should we see this as sort of par for the course when it comes to the U.S. relationship with Taiwan and the response to it from Beijing? Well, just to address the first part of the trip of Nancy Pelosi back in April, it was canceled because I I was point on that because I did a a show on it, Mm -hmm. uh, detailing exactly. It was canceled. She backed down or the administration uh, asked asked her to back down. Mm Hiring that it was COVID when in reality it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Ah. China at that time was, and I did check on this. So okay. I'm saying what I'm talking about it. So the idea of the weapons, no, the U.S. is going to move forward with that. So China can bark all it wants uh, because uh, the only concern I have personally that will have to do with the type of weapons the U.S. will sell the, 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 the island. That's mm-hmm. the question, yeah. Mm-hmm. Type of weapons. Then you got an issue, and it becomes now a question for China how they intend to proceed. I do not believe that they will just uh, uh, say rabbling, say rabbling, whatever. No, 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 no. They are now, they, China, in a position now to really stand firm on what they believe, because to them, to China, Taiwan is red line. Mm-hmm. When you have the last summit of NATO inviting Japan, Australia, New Zealand, you get the idea right there. Right. May, may I uh, follow up on that? Is is there anything uh, that that's not a red line in the in the arms sale relationship between the United States and Taiwan? Is there any level do you think that the Chinese would, if not accept, just decide to look the other way on? I mean. We have been it, uh, for years. Yeah. We have, but, but it seems like the Chinese are are being more aggressive in reaction to the United States being more aggressive. Well, it's because again the the nature of the weapons that they've been. If you go back twenty five years, the weapon we sold at Taiwan twenty years ago, of course, would not be the same one we asked them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The red line will be the, if they are offensive type of weapons. If we are talking about medium-range missiles, then that's very concerning, you know. So, But at this stage, China is in possession, and I say this even though I get criticized for it. Uh, what I'm saying is the reality on the ground. The geopolitical landscape has shifted, but not to the U.S. favor. So mm-hmm. China is now in position to stand head-to-head or toe-to-toe with the United States, and this issue of Taiwan, especially if now the Speaker of the House follows through with the trip, is going to put China under the microscope as to, is it just barking? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of, like, whether this is about particularly sensitive technology, I'm looking at this story uh, that says there had been some hope that the sale would include these particular kinds of air-to-surface missiles that would enhance uh, Taiwan's air force. Because, you know, you think $100 million, what—what— what 
particularly sensitive technology could actually be sold for $100 million that would, yeah. you know, that could even come close to tipping the balance of military power when you're talking about Taiwan and China, which is, I mean, it is not close. Um, but again, you think about the war in Ukraine and it is, you know, it's, it, it's not necessarily the most— um, the, the biggest and most cutting edge technology that uh, Russia is concerned about mm -hmm. the U.S. sending to to Ukraine. And it is actually these uh, different kinds of surface to air missiles. So maybe right. maybe that is it. Maybe it's maybe it's this particular kind of missile that China just doesn't want to see them have more of. Yeah, and, and because they are watching what's going on right now in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And that to them, it's really providing them uh, sort of a, a landscaping to what which what should we expect we the chinese mm -hmm. we expect from the us if this this tension uh, those tensions reach uh, reach another level or escalates beyond just the rhetoric of, of yeah. um, the conversation and so forth so that's what they are watching for the only thing i'm convinced about is that if there are advanced type of weapons, and you absolutely correct, Michelle, $100 million in weapon sales is nothing. Mm -hmm. That's what we sell to the Saudis. Yeah. Billions. So, well, what's going to be? It's just, uh, that's just nothing but a sort of a, a window dressing, shall we say, uh, the U.S. to stay relevant as far as we are funding or supporting, rather, uh, Taiwan militarily. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was Dr. David Walalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant, a speaker, an author, and a veteran. Dr. Walalu, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. We're going to take a quick break and come right back. We bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And as we teased yesterday, uh, we are going to be talking about oceans and plankton. And I am very sorry. This is scary. It is a very frightening story. Uh, joining us to, to talk about what this does and doesn't mean is Guy McPherson. He's a scientist. He's Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. Guy, thanks for joining us once again. Thanks for having me on the show, Michelle and John. It's a pleasure to be your go-to danger person. Yes. You are. You are. <laughs> yes, that means a lot to us. <laughs> <laughs> Danger Mouse. So I was sent this story in a in a group chat, uh, and all three of us in the chat then spent the next night really basically sleepless over the implications here. And so to sum it up, right, this is a story that comes from Scottish newspaper The Sunday Post. Uh, it is about a research team in Edinburgh uh, that did some research into plankton levels in the Atlantic Ocean and found that, according to what they saw, it has all but disappeared. So this team from the Global Oceanic Survey Foundation, which is associated with Edinburgh University, spent two years collecting water samples from the Atlantic. And according to the Sunday Post, it had been thought that Atlantic plankton levels had halved since the 1940s. But this team's findings suggest 90 percent has vanished due to chemical pollution from plastics, farm fertilizers and pharmaceuticals 
in the water. Oh, my gosh. And I, I want to read one upsetting paragraph from the piece and then get your thoughts, Guy. Uh, it starts like this. The scientists warn there are only a few years left before the consequences become catastrophically clear when fish, whales, and dolphins become extinct with grave implications for the planet. The researchers in the report say an environmental catastrophe is unfolding. We believe humanity could adapt to global warming and extreme weather changes. It is our view that humanity will not survive the extinction of most marine plants and animals. And so, you know, this is one study right? Uh, it is possible their findings aren't accurate. And so I wonder if we can start there with just you, your understanding of what is going on in, in the Atlantic Ocean, at least. Well, for context and partial response to your question, here's something I wrote at GuyMcPherson.com several years ago. Quote, plankton form the base of the marine food web. Mm -hmm. Some populations have declined 40% since 1950. And then I refer to an article in the July 29th, 2010 issue of Nature by Daniel Boyce and colleagues. Plankton are on the verge of disappearing completely, according to a peer-reviewed paper in the October 18th, 2013 issue of Global Change Biology by Stephanie Hinder and seven other colleagues. If you're keeping score, that paper in Global Change Biology was published eight years and nine months ago. The paper concluded Plankton were on the verge of disappearing completely mm. from this planet. Mm. Plankton form the base of the marine food web. They produce about half of the photosynthesis on Earth and therefore about half of the oxygen we find so convenient when we're breathing. Mm. Plankton are therefore critical to our continued existence. As Captain Paul Watson, the renowned founder of Sea Shepherd, has said hundreds of times, if the oceans die, we die. Mm -hmm. After all, life on Earth started in the ocean, and that's where we get half of our oxygen. Mm -hmm. So here's the bottom line that I'm not very happy to relay. We didn't have long back in October 2013. You can do the math on the rest of my conclusion. Yeah. But my to finally God. answer your question, yes, it's possible the findings of this study are not accurate. The process of science is the best route we've come up with so far to generate reliable knowledge. Sometimes it fails. Mm -hmm. So... I don't think it, it has or is failing in this case, based on the evidence I've seen, but we can wish, right? Right. Yeah, but it's not it's not a good sign that, you know, this is not the first uh, study that has found this, right? It, we, we can go back nearly a decade and find people making the same kind of warnings. The, the question that I have, and I think, you know, Guy, we've, we've talked about this before because, you know, you've explained uh, to us in the past how, you know, some of these processes don't slowly creep up on you uh, because, you know— you can still get fish at restaurants, you know what I mean? Like you can go down to the shore of Maryland and, and have a crab feast and there's no sense, I think at least among the public, uh, that marine life, uh, like across the board, marine life is on the brink of extinction, right? And so I wonder if you can talk to us about how maybe we, we misunderstand some of these climate disasters that are coming. They're not going to creep up, you know, slowly and steadily get bigger uh, like, a, like a crescendo, but they could come upon us very suddenly. Absolutely. And, you know, we've been warned repeatedly throughout history about the rapidity of this particular event, this particular version of abrupt climate change. Here's something from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. This is from their report, Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees, published October 8th, 2018. So quite a while ago now. Mm -hmm. 
They write, these global level rates of human-driven change far exceed the rates of change driven by geophysical or biosphere forces that have altered the Earth's system trajectory in the past. And they refer to a couple of peer-reviewed articles. Even abrupt geophysical events do not approach current rates of human-driven change. What's happening is faster than anything observed in planetary history. We're not taking it seriously. Almost nobody I talk to take seriously the fact that we're destroying the ocean, we're destroying life on Earth, and we just look away. I, You know, yeah. on the one hand, I think crab on the coast is a great idea. Right. You know, smoke them while you got them, that yeah. sort of thing. But on the other hand, it seems that our so-called leaders are looking the other way at a really important time that they should be paying attention. Yeah, and the, I wonder also, you know— there is a lot we a lot of the talk recently has been about it's about emissions right it's about greenhouse gas emissions it's about sort of a, a warming uh, air atmosphere mm -hmm. uh, and i think it's worth returning to this line uh, from from these researchers who say it is our view that humanity will not survive the extinction of most marine plants and animals and so i wonder if if in a focus on uh, climate change sort of writ large, uh, if we are ignoring environmental catastrophe, you know, sort of in, in the smaller scale in different uh, specific ecosystems, right? Because, yeah, it might be very possible that humans of a species have the technological capability to respond to some of the consequences of a much warmer planet in terms of protecting ourselves in the places we live now. But maybe in our sort of focus on how to do that, we have not considered that other animals do not have that technological prowess and will not be able to adapt or not as quickly and not in ways that we can predict and that we, in fact, rely on these other creatures. I, I think maybe we have allowed... Uh, this idea of climate change to be separated from ecosystem collapse, if that makes some sense. And so I wondered if you could talk about, you know, actually looking at the, the, the chains of life on earth that we rely on, uh, that, you know, we're not focused on saving as we sort of focus on how can we create a, you know, a biodome that we could live under or whatever. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, we we depend upon so many other species for our own survival while failing to admit the importance of those species. That's the really critical thing here. If you don't think you depend upon other organisms, mm, treat the microfauna in your stomach badly for about an hour <laughs> okay. or two. And for the next 24 hours later, when you're standing up again, let me know how that works out. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and those are the little things, right? Mm -hmm. And here we're talking about the big things. We're, we're, this particular mass extinction event exceeds the rapidity of the worst of the previous mass extinction events by one or two orders of magnitude. That's way too fast for vertebrates and mammals to keep up. And we are vertebrate mammals. We are, what we fail to acknowledge or recognize over and over again is that we too are animals. Homo sapiens, the so-called wise ape, mm -hmm. is also an animal. And just like uh, eight other species in the genus Homo, we too could actually go extinct. Yeah. You know, it's happened with other organisms through history that looked a lot like us. But 
Humanity will not survive the extinction of most marine plants and animals, as these researchers conclude. Mm -hmm. But humanity also will not survive the rapid environmental change resulting from the ongoing mass extinction event, which is underlain by this very rapid rate of environmental change. Yeah. So, I, you know, it's it seems that we're screaming into the wind, as it were, because very few people are willing to admit that humans might not be as special as we think and that we depend upon a living planet for our own survival. It's mm -hmm. tough to tough to see when you go to the grocery store and there's food there every single time. And when you go to the tap and you turn it on and water comes out every single time, mm -hmm. it's hard for us to believe, as special as we are, that we too could actually go extinct. After all, there's more of us now than there's ever been in history. That's right. So it's going great so far. Right. I mean, do you, do you have any idea of what kind of timeline we're, we are talking about? We, we talked about warnings back in 20, I think you said in 2013, they're already saying, uh, you know, up to 90% of, of plankton has gone. So, I mean, how, how much longer until we get to this, this tipping point where we are going to have to uh, miserably witness the, the mass starvation of some of this great ocean uh, megafauna, charismatic megafauna of the oceans that we love so much? The, the lead author of this paper and his colleague, Diane Duncan, um, produced a paper that appeared at SSRN, which is part of the Elsevier series, which is a, a remarkably renowned set of journals. And in their story, near the bottom of page five in an eight-page preprint at SSRN comes this line, quote, perhaps over a time frame of just one or two years, we lose all the whales, mm. seal, birds, teleost fish, and the food supply for two billion people, end quote. As an aside, I'll point out that teleost fish comprise 96% of all extant species of fish. They account for some 40 orders, 448 families, and more than 26,000 species of fish. Again, I quote Paul Watson, if the oceans die, we die. It's just so hard. It's, it's having these conversations with you, Guy, I really appreciate that because, you know, we do have to look, you know, with, with clear eyes at this thing. And yet it is very hard. It's very hard, I think, if you if you grow up in the sort of relatively uh, cosseted West, right, where nothing goes too wrong too often and, you know, ships can mostly be righted. It's it is really hard to imagine that uh, that this change could come along so quickly and really hard to know, you know, how you should change your life as a result. Right. I, I am aware of the possibility, probably not on this show, but of the possibility of, you know, uh, uh, causing, causing mass panic and despair, you know? And yet, of course, like if, if that's the appropriate response or not, maybe not panic, but like urgent, re truly urgent action that maybe takes forms that uh, we, we would have previously considered to be, I don't know, unsavory, right? Like maybe that is what needs to happen. I don't know. It's, it's a sort of cognitive dissonance that we live in. It feels like, and it, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, again, because I guess it could be wrong. You know what I mean? Like we'll we'll find out in a, in a pretty short time frame. And it's just so it's so hard to it's hard to know how to take this information on board and what kind of decisions to make as a result, right? I realizing I, I'm not asking you a scientific question, but it must be one that you wrestle with. Yes, absolutely. And 
You know, the, the IPCC concluded, as I already indicated, that climate change is abrupt, very abrupt, in fact, mm -hmm. in 2018. Well, in their special report on the on the ocean and cryosphere and a changing climate published in September of 2019, they concluded that climate change is irreversible. So we are in the midst of abrupt, irreversible climate change. Even the IPCC admits that, and they're one of the most conservative scientific bodies in the history of the planet. Mm -hmm. what's, our, what's an appropriate response to that information? Well, it's not to hide it. And that's what I see most days. You know, yeah. we've known about abrupt, irreversible climate change for three years now, based on this incredibly conservative political-slash-scientific body, the IPCC. And when do we hear about it? Almost never. And if you think people are going to panic when they learn about it, just wait till they learn about it as they're dying, as Habitat for Humans disappears. Yeah. I would much rather people know that we're in the midst of abrupt irreversible climate change in advance so that they can make amends with the people they need to make amends with so that they can apologize, so that they can seek an apology themselves, so they can, they can do the things that they feel like they need to do. Mm -hmm. So that when we lose habitat for our species, it won't come as a tremendous surprise. It's already happening all over the globe, as I've reported repeatedly. We're already losing habitat for humans. It hasn't happened to you yet, and it hasn't happened to me yet. Mm -hmm. Does that mean it can't happen? Of course not. And and I, did, I would rather know in advance that the catastrophe is on the horizon than not know until it's already on me. Right. You know, and and maybe I'm alone in that sort of thinking, but I don't think so. I think you and John also share that mentality with me yeah. that we'd rather know that what's coming. And then when it gets here, we go, oh, this is what it looks like. Just before we started the show, we were talking about this terrible heat wave that's been that's been afflicting uh, Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, temperatures over 100 degrees in London. Fires are breaking out, major fires. CNN just reported a few minutes ago that Luton Airport uh, outside of London is closed today because it's so hot that the runway buckled. Mm -hmm. And it's only going to get worse. Yeah. Yes, it absolutely. I don't see any way this is going to get better. And yet I constantly hear that all we have to do is you and me, you and I have to reduce our emissions. Right. The, the populace has to start behaving better. Right. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. That's, that's not going to fix anything. Right. And it points to blame in the absolute wrong direction. Yeah, I, I will not ask you uh, to comment on uh, the news that Joe Biden might declare a climate emergency any day now, oh, because I don't I don't think there really is much reason uh, to hope that this administration is, you know, is going to take the opportunity to do anything truly transformational. But uh, that is that is the news that we have to end this with. Don't worry, guys. Uh, Joe Biden might declare a climate emergency sometime. And uh, who knows, maybe throw a whole bunch of money at Amazon to do some climate mitigation when it with regard to its deliveries or something like that. Guy McPherson, really appreciate you joining us to to talk about this and, and wrestle with the implications. That was scientist Guy McPherson. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again soon. Thanks, Michelle and John. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank to you, Guy. We are going to uh, wipe away the tears and take a break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk some uh, some domestic politics, some surveillance uh, news, and uh, yeah, get into what's what's ahead for the GOP. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back.
to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. A new Gallup poll shows that the trust Americans have in newspapers and television news is at an all-time low. Just 16% of Americans say they have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in newspapers. We did it. (laughs) (laughs) And just 11% of Americans trust television news. These numbers are five percentage points below where they were a year ago. And that was an all-time low when it was published. Only Congress has a lower believability rating. They're at 9%. This comes on the heels of a decision by the Pulitzer Committee to reject complaints from Donald Trump and others that the Washington Post and the New York Times should have their 2018 Pulitzer Prizes for national reporting revoked because the Russiagate narrative has been debunked. The Pulitzer Committee said in a statement that, quote, no passages passages or headlines, contentions or assertions in any of the winning submissions were discredited by facts that emerged subsequent to the conferral of the prizes, unquote. That is just simply not true. Well, I also, oh, I, we were going to talk about this, but it's just sort of like, yeah, okay, if you're reporting that the, 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 you know, the wrist bones connected to the arm bone, okay, sure. Sure. But then if you're saying, you know, the, the whole animal that you're building is, a, is an elephant when in fact it's a giraffe, should you take that into consideration? Right. right. That's good. I like that analogy. Uh Meanwhile, the Biden administration is asking European Union allies to begin sharing biometric data on travelers, including fingerprints, photographs, and facial features. This comes six months after a UK national of Pakistani origin traveled to Colleyville, Texas, and took 11 hostages at a synagogue. Malik Akram was already known to British authorities as a, quote, person of interest, unquote. But U.S. authorities had no idea. Akram's hostages eventually escaped, and he was shot and killed by police. So far, the Biden administration request has met with a cool reception from the Europeans. But, you know, by judging by the way things have gone in the past, this is going to end up happening. And the American Civil Liberties Union has secured documents through the Freedom of Information Act that show how the Department of Homeland Security uses our cell phone's locational data to conduct warrantless surveillance on Americans as part of their investigations. DHS is using software called Ventel and LocateX to conduct the surveillance, and they're passing the information on to state and local law enforcement, again, with no warrant. Senator Ron Wyden, an Oregon Democrat, has sponsored a new bill called the Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act to make it illegal to gather and use this type of information without a warrant. We're joined by Kevin Gastala. Kevin's a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. Welcome back, Kevin. Hey, it's good to be here with you. Good to have you back. Let's start with this Gallup poll. Uh, first, if you don't mind, I'd like to give you my thoughts and then I want to get your reaction. I, I don't think there should be any surprise at all that Americans don't trust the news. We have outlets that are exclusively owned by corporate media. We have politicians that shout fake news every time something they don't like is published or broadcast. We have network news that's managed from their corporation's entertainment divisions, and that's been going on since the 90s. It's no wonder that so many Americans are going to alternative news sites for their information, and I think this will continue. I think more and more people are going to get their news from the dissenter, which you do, uh, the Gray Zone, Consortium News, Anti-War. There are any number of places you can go for news, and the big corporate owners simply won't be able to figure out why. 
What do you think about this? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, we could say it's not surprising, but that doesn't really give us a whole lot to talk about. So I'd rather uh, focus on, you know, breaking it down rather than telling you whether I'm stunned to learn that 90% <laughs> of the country doesn't right. like media because, I mean, I live in this daily. I know people are really angry. And let's put it this way. I don't think it's just that they're angry at media. I mean, I think 90% of people are fed up with the entire system. It's not serving them. Yeah. It's not doing anything to take care of their lives. And the priorities of those who run the U.S. government are not aligned with what people actually need uh, in order to survive. And so that that's, that's reflected in the attitudes of, of media. And, and so, you know, you know, we're here on Sputnik and, uh, you know, we'll get accused of promoting messages that are anti-U.S. narratives. But we really get our news from sources that are out there widely available. Um, and I get my news, uh, like for the most part, what I consider to be the most reliable are local newspapers and not like uh, CNN or Fox News right. or MSNBC, which you know don't really do reporting. And sometimes the New York Times and the Washington Post have bombshells. Yahoo News might have something. But we're talking about online news sites really being the prime originators, I think, of some of the more impactful stories. Uh, if you look at some of the stories that are really uh, crucial to follow right now in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade being overturned, you know, you're not going to get those from corporate news. You're going to get them from the most more smaller outlets or these local newspapers that are on the ground covering what's happening. And the sad fact is that most of those are dying. They're being bought up by vulture capitalists. They're being squeezed. Uh, people are being bought out, forced into retirement. Uh, they're trying to make those papers ineffective. They don't want people reporting on City Hall anymore. And I think that just adds to this poll that we have here where you have such a low number of people who are confident. I mean, I look at this figure and see how the number back in 1977 was in the 50s as far as confidence. It's right. just stunning to me that like a, like a half century has gone by and this decline has taken place. And I think it's really, I think it's really sad for, like, we, we talk about things that are threats to our democracy. We don't want politicians to try and steal elections, but I don't think you have a healthy democracy if people don't believe that their press institutions are actually trying to protect them and protect the country. One of the surprises in this poll, at least to me, uh, was that only 5% of Republicans trust newspapers. 5%. That's one out of every 20 people. The funny thing about that is that most newspapers in America have conservative editorial boards that, that skew Republican. And you look at, at uh, endorsements of presidential candidates, and most small-town papers endorse the Republican running for president uh, rather than Democrat. Why do you think Republicans don't trust newspapers? I don't want to sound too cynical, but is it because so many of them have just bought into the the Fox News, OAN, Newsmax narrative? Is there some other reason? I think it's pretty basic. Let's also look at the number that says that 35% of Democrats have confidence in, in, in the media and how high that is compared to independents and Republicans. And Republicans, right. And, and you want to say, well, yeah, independents and Republicans, you want to say, well, what are you smoking? I mean, what, what makes you feel so 
high on the media compared to them. And I think it's because it's become part of their identity that, and it, and this is true that it happened. I'm just saying it's, it's, it says something about what's happened to the political identity of Democrats that they feel they have to defend CNN and right. MSNBC right. or the New York times from Donald Trump. And that that's now a part of that. That's part of the culture war. Um, you know, and it's not really anything that anybody's going to be hurt by. Like if the New York Times or CNN or MSNBC gets attacked daily by uh, Donald Trump, they're still going to be fine. And in fact, they're probably going to have better viewership because they're going to be able to cash in on his attacks. But that the Democrats feel like it's like an existential crisis to the republic that they have to defend these cable news outlets. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, uh, an- another thing that surprised me too is um is how alternative media, uh independent media, were not even mentioned in this. There's no breakout um as to mm-hmm. do you like uh online news? If so, what kind of online news? Well, I don't know why they wouldn't ask a question like that when so many Americans are transitioning away from the major news sites to more niche uh, sites. I mean, that's why we, you and I talk about this. Yeah. That's why we read 20 different news sites, 25 different news sites every day. I have a theory as to this. I wonder if you agree, Kevin, but I think it's this, it's, it's much more effective to simply pretend they don't exist oh, than yeah. to try to contest sure. them, right? It's the same thing that is done with the American left. You just pretend it's not there, uh, and it does a, a better job of actually, you know, silencing that that media then yeah. you know trying to contest what they report cuz usually you're going to be you know on the wrong side in that. I w- I wonder if you think that's the case Kevin. Well, I think it would be a, a a complete threat to the business model of all of these media companies if some place like the Gall- like Gallup asked people and then you found out and everyone were able to learn that in fact people do have confidence in media but they do have confidence in online media and they don't have confidence in their local newspaper or they don't have confidence in their local news or they don't have confidence in what they're seeing on television or in the New York Times. And then uh, isn't it interesting that as deep as we are into all of this, that uh, we, we were supposed to have our confidence restored by these disinformation tracking tools like NewsGuard and others, and, and yet it hasn't done anything. Yeah. for us. Um, right. And I don't even know if it's done anything for elites who the, the tool is actually for. I mean, it's supposed to make them feel better about controlling the diet of information that we're all able to consume. But it, it really hasn't made a dent in what people are able to access. As far as I know and can tell, you you could read all the conspiracy theories about anything that you want. You can, you can seek this out. All this information is available on the internet. If you want to put it in Google, if you want to go through Twitter, you can you can still find just about anything about any. I mean, you can confirm your worldview. If I want to find something that tells me that the government is making chips that are being implanted into human brains right now to turn us into robots, I can find somebody writing about that, and I can convince myself that it's true. And and the the fact is that the biggest issue that we all have in our society is the ability of, of of everyone to sort themselves out into these little groups in which they can believe these like niche worldviews about the way everything's organized 
and then we're all fractured and atomized Mm -hmm. and there's no consensus about any issues. And then what happens is we're stuck with these centrist right wing media organizations Mm -hmm. that say that we need to have balance. And like the fringe right is a problem. The fringe left is a problem. And then we're in between and we're going to be sitting here trying to tell you, you know, how, how to navigate all of this because everyone's kooky, but we're the ones that are sane. But in fact, you know, they don't have any better handle on all of this at all. They're, they're not the ones with any more authority and people don't believe that they actually know what they're doing. And their prescriptions for solving our societal problems aren't better than the left or the right. Let's talk for a minute about this uh, decision by the Pulitzer Committee uh, to essentially reject assertions that the Washington Post and the New York Times uh, coverage of Russiagate was incorrect. What, what do you think we should take from this whole incident? It seems to me like their statement in their statement, they were they were sort of parsing their words just to make this thing go away. What do you think? Well, first, these are independent reviews. Why don't we get Correct. to read them? Mm-hmm. You know, I said the same thing. These they, they went out of their way. The Pulitzer people went out of their way to say, not only were these independent reviews, but we chose people to do the reviews who had no connection to us and no connection to each other. It's like, okay, so if they're so uber independent, then let us see what they had to say. And they didn't yeah, and release who are it. They? And why couldn't they release it independent from the Pulitzer Prize? And why isn't the Pulitzer Prize just responding to this independent entity saying like, Hey, we looked at these and we're, or we, we read the, we read the reports and we're very pleased to see that we've been vindicated, that we made the right decisions right. when it came to awarding these prizes in 2018. Okay. So the nice thing about the Pulitzer prize, you can go and see the headlines of all of these stories that were awarded. If you want to refresh your memory and some of these things, it'd be really hard to get people worked up in anymore. So whether they made the right decision or not in awarding this, and that's obviously the debate that is at issue here with uh, the reviews, but I'll just say in retrospect, that if you look at some of these headlines, I mean, it's pretty clear that uh, this would not stand up today as really good reporting because it's flimsy. Yeah. Um, I mean, things like, uh, you know, I don't know that we'll ever be able to get people to accept it. And it really put us on a path that people like Stephen Cohen and other foreign policy thinkers recognized before the war in Ukraine. But this idea that Donald Trump never thought Russia was a threat and that he wasn't letting the U.S. government do anything to counter it yeah. as a country. It's one of the biggest lies we yeah, would it's just, yeah, that's just a lie. lie. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. Uh, I want to ask you also about this biometric data sharing plan or demand uh, that the uh, Biden administration has. Uh, I flew in uh, from Saudi Arabia last night and I, when I was standing in line at uh, Customs and Border Protection I noticed a sign that they had put up saying that they were going to collect everybody's biometric data. And sure enough, you know, they they take your fingerprints, they take your picture, all kinds of stuff. And it said for American citizens, this information will be held only for 12 hours. But for foreign nationals, uh, the information may be held permanently and may be shared with other law enforcement organizations. I was surprised by that. So it seems like 
what they're saying now is that they want there's a quid pro quo here that if we're going to be sharing this biometric data with other countries or even just collecting it uh, for our own use, uh, we want to know if somebody has gotten in trouble in another country. So if there's a Brit, for example, like this guy, um, Akram, who does not have a, a criminal record in the United States, is not in any kind of U.S. law enforcement database because he's never never had reason to be, but he is in a criminal database in the U.K. that the U.K. should be forced to share that information with us. What do you think about this? Yeah. So, I mean, what about this specific program, the thing that really stands out to me is just how it's another program that we're hearing about that has been unearthed in the last decade. I mean, just to me, it seems like not a year goes by that we don't learn of some new dragnet surveillance that program that is, that, that is being um, just carried out. And, you know, we still haven't gotten to the point where people in our government accept a core truth that someone like NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake could help them recognize, which is as long as you have this haystack that is so massive, which you don't know what you're looking for inside of it, and you make the searches in the way of like sifting through the information so complex that people get through, like who you're talking about here, like Akram would be a good example of someone. There have been others who have been able to commit attacks on U.S. soil who we find out later right. they have information in our own databases. And what they haven't figured out is that these dragnet – or they have figured it out. But what they prefer to do, and I think they prefer to do it because it's possibly more lucrative for the companies involved. But uh, And also it's more cumbersome to try and go through the processes and follow the letter of the law. So they use these dragnet surveillance programs in which everyone gets swept up. And as it's being made clear by the ACLU, uh, this was particularly for uh, undocumented immigrants uh, or for people who would be crossing the border to stop, you know, who the Republicans would call illegals. And um, but the problem is that, as is laid out, someone who's in a border town who's an American citizen doesn't get any more protection than the person who is crossing in from Mexico or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you could be, uh, it seems like you could be flying in to, uh, any airports, which, uh, certain airports are considered the border. Right. And those people who are there in the vicinity could have their data swept up as well. And, uh, that would still be in the database. And then Ventel, this, location broke this location data broker you know it's not clear to me like what they're doing this isn't regulated um no. how are they how are they making money off of this and who are they selling this to and and it's very, it's stated very clearly that the reason why the government is in this contract with Ventel is so that they don't have to go to a judge or a court and get access to this data because even though we don't have up-to-date electronic privacy laws for good reason, uh, we still have some protections that say that you can't just take people's cell phone data and do whatever you would like with it.
It's a good question. How how are they collecting this and able to monetize it? You know, there was a there was a a line in this article, like from a from a uh, DHS uh, agent to another DHS agent saying, uh, can you ask your contact at the software company if he can run this data for me and let me know? And then uh, he went on to pass it to like a dozen different law enforcement organizations all around the state of Virginia. So I don't know. This whole thing bothers me. And and you're, you're right, too, to draw a comparison with Tom Drake, the NSA whistleblower, because in a way, this is very similar to what Tom blew the whistle on 15 plus years ago. I guess it was 15 years ago now uh, where he was warning us, look, n- nobody's getting warrants for this information. And we don't know if this information is being used to further or even to initiate criminal investigations. I, I mean, it, if it is, it would be the fruit of the poison tree, as they say. And we don't know that. So how do we protect ourselves? How do we keep the government at bay, you know, from from hoovering up our our personal data? It's it's something that the courts have been remiss for the past 22 years in addressing. Yeah, I just need to make one quick connection here uh, before we wrap up our conversation, if we have a minute, because with everyone focused on what states are going to do now to enforce laws against abortion or just good point access to reproductive health care, I'm seeing how states are putting in requests for data. They want to be able to access some of this uh, material so they can figure out what uh, a woman is doing, um, are, where are they traveling, how, how are they handling their health care. There's a really big concern about some of these health care Apps that people have that 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 they use to to, to track themselves, mm-hmm. um, and 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 now what is that data going to be used for? And so you should draw a connection. These these un- I mean, I think what we're learning here is everything that Snowden was warning us about. Oh yeah, everything that people before him were warning us about, as far of as the surveillance state goes. We're now seeing how individual states can use this for things. And it doesn't have to be national security, but of course, national security, the threat of terrorism, is where it started. That's where it started to protect us all. But it easily morphs into being used for other purposes. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. We've got a a little bit of uh, time. I, I can't let you go without asking you about Julian Assange. So many of us here in the United States, many of us in the media are watching this UK leadership fight unfold with great interest. They're They're starting to sort of peel off um, low vote getters in the initial rounds of uh, voting for the leadership of the conservative party. But my question then to you is, does it matter who heads the conservative party? If you're Julian Assange, do you think any of this has any bearing on what happens to Julian? Does it, does it matter if on the one hand, the the former, you know, chancellor of the exchequer becomes the prime minister versus Preeti Patel or somebody else? Well, I don't think Priti Patel is going to be prime minister, so that's good yep. for Julian yeah, on that some is good. level. Yep. But I don't believe that it's going to make a difference who runs the UK. It's pretty clear to me that the US has locked the UK government into a position of, yeah. of serving them as like a sidekick and doing whatever is necessary. We saw this in the lead up to the war in Ukraine, where basically the U.S. would launder 
unverified intelligence about what Russia was supposedly doing or would fabricate intelligence, and they would rely on the UK government to trot it out and make claims about coup plots that were being manufactured in Ukraine by Russian plants. And then if it didn't pan out at all, they could just walk it back um, and, and, and pretend like they had nothing to do with what the UK was saying. And then the UK would get all the blowback to their credibility and the US's hands would never be dirtied by the fact that they knew this was garbage. And so, no, I think that they're going to continue to play the role of serving the U.S. and trying to bring Julian Assange to the country for, for a trial. And what we're looking at right now is the reality that Assange probably is in the United States uh, by March of next year, maybe at the latest May. They filed appeals. It's important for people to know that there are appeals. His his. Uh, lawyers are fighting. They finally get to challenge the initial court decision that came down in January of 2021 that momentarily spared him, but had a lot of really bad stuff in it that is impactful and and, and hurts press freedom rights globally. Uh, But uh, obviously, they don't have a whole lot of faith that the system will spare Julian Assange, and that's well-placed. And, I mean, everyone is preparing that next year Mm -hmm. Assange will likely be on trial in the United States, or I will have at least been arraigned. Uh, You've kind of anticipated my next question, which is um, whether or not you could foresee something happening for Julian in the European Court of Human Rights. And can you tell us a little bit about what these appeals are? Yes. So uh, the appeals are actually, there's two different appeals. So there's one in which they're challenging the decision that came down from Priti Patel. And there's another one in which they're challenging the judge's decision that I just mentioned. So when it comes to Priti Patel, they are suggesting that, you know, she didn't pay attention to uh, the, the Magna Carta, basically, or that, that, that she's not right. recognizing that the U.S.-U.K. extradition treaty is supposed to prohibit extradition for political offenses. Um, um, and then there's things like her accepting that there are specialty arrangements, like believing that the U.S. government is actually going to protect Assange from the death penalty, criminal contempt proceedings, or further prosecution for conduct outside of the extradition request. Mm -hmm. So they just don't know on what grounds she's accepting that these, uh, you would call them assurances, actually are legitimate um, if they've been privately made to her. And then you've got the more larger questions that people have probably heard about if they followed the Assange case which is, you know, these human rights grounds, you know, the fact that Baretzer um, did not believe yes. that the extradition would deny him his right to a fair trial, or the she did acknowledge that he would be at risk of inhuman and degrading treatment, but then ultimately the court um, had to go backward on it because the High Court of Justice overturned it, uh, that they didn't find for a right to freedom of expression, that um, they're extending the law here. Like the Espionage Act is being extended to him when it probably should not cover Julian mm-hmm. Assange. Mm-hmm. There's a misrepresentation of the facts. And also the case has been pursued for ulterior political motives. So those are key issues that we're going to hear in these upcoming appeals that'll play out throughout the rest of this year. I think you're exactly right. One final question before I let you go. Um, I heard this week from whistleblower Marty Gottesfeld, who is incarcerated in the in the communications management unit at the federal penitentiary in Marion, Illinois, uh, along with drone whistleblower uh, Daniel Hale. Marty said that he has heard uh, through attorneys, I don't know if it's his attorneys, that there is dwindling support 
inside the Bureau of Prisons leadership for these communications management units that they just don't work. They were set up as counterterrorism tools, but instead they're used to silence whistleblowers like these two guys. Have you heard of anything like this? Is there any chance that there could be changes to the CMUs or at least a policy to not house whistleblowers in them? And I'll add one thing. The uh, the head of the Bureau of Prisons um, left his job effective yesterday and um, and already has been subpoenaed to testify before Congress. So there's a court case. Uh, I know that the Center for Constitutional Rights has a legal challenge against the CMUs that was before the Supreme Court. Uh, We'll see what becomes of that. I don't have any faith that they'll decide that the Bureau of Prisons doesn't have a right to do this to people. But, you know, if it's going to be any changes, it's going to come from within the Bureau of Prisons. I mean, we've seen that that's one of the few things that actually works in this country is when there is resistance internally, that's when the most changes get done. So those are the only way that Gottesfeld or Daniel Hale could get some kind of mercy. And also, let's just be clear, there's similar conditions being imposed on people who are in special administrative measures. Um, And there are other ways in which they can do this to people. So the idea that they might say, ah, let's abandon the CMUs, could mean that they'll just replace it with special administrative measures. Because when you think about it, right. why do you really need two systems that yeah, really allow for a lot of the same different, the, the same control of communication? Correct. It's it's all about controlling communications. Okay, Kevin Gastala, thank you so much for joining us. Kevin is a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. So stay tuned. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. We're now joined by Eugene Craig. Eugene is a Republican strategist, grassroots activist, and former vice chair of the Maryland Republican Party. There's a very important uh, uh, election today in Maryland at a whole bunch of different levels. Whether it's governor or state controller or Congress, there's a lot going on in Maryland. But before we get to the local Maryland issues, we want to talk to Eugene about national politics. Eugene, welcome back to the show. I always enjoy when you're here. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you for doing this. Uh, Let's start by talking about Donald Trump. We've talked about Trump a thousand times on this show, and I think all of us are in agreement, maybe I'm, I'm misspeaking for Michelle, but I think all of us are in agreement that we would be surprised if Donald Trump runs again, because uh, he's lost the popular vote twice, even though he won the Electoral College the first time. And his his personal pride is such that it, I would be surprised if he set himself up for another failure. Uh, but then you hear from people like Roger Stone, who was on uh, Infowars the other day, saying that that he thought Trump would announce that he was running uh, before the end of July. 
And now we're seeing uh, pieces in the mainstream media saying that, oh, Trump is running and the Republicans as a party are doing everything they can to just get him to delay his official announcement until after the midterm elections. So my first question for you is, do you think he's going to run? And if you do, do you think that he announces before the midterms? I think he absolutely does run. Wow. Um, I have I have no idea when he announces. Um, but I definitely think he absolutely is going to run. And he's going to lose him. Do you think it matters when he announces? Uh, yeah, it does. For fundraising purposes. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, um, jockeying out other candidates like the Sanchez. Um, it absolutely does matter. It 100% matters. Um, I wanted to uh, to mention to you uh, a poll last week by The Economist magazine that for the very first time had Trump 2024 at under 50 percent. It was at 49 percent with DeSantis at 24 percent. And for the most part, nobody else mattered. They had Nikki Haley at like seven or nine or something like that. And everybody else was at one or two percent except for Josh Hawley, who was at zero, which he's at zero in every poll. Um, But anyway, for the very first time, Trump was at 49%. And I mentioned my belief that if you are essentially an incumbent president, at least incumbent for your party in that you've already been president, and you're under 50%, that's a serious problem uh, for you. You you, got to keep in mind, Trump 2016 grabbed just 33% of that. Oh, that's a good point. That's true. And the thing is this, right? You know, the the rules for nominating are different than just if it was just one, like, straight-up national primary. Yeah. I mean, most of the Republican states are winner-take-all, where you can literally be the winner with 25%. Yeah, that's true. You know, I, I think, you know, you know, while when it comes to a national scale, there may be a certain sentiment, um, you know, we, let us not forget that Trump 2016 was a uh, 30%, 33% Trump, you know, up until, you know, he pretty much secured the nomination. I remember also being deep enough in the primary season that, there was still a stop Trump movement that was viable at the time of the Virginia primary that it was by then it was like Trump or Rubio. And a lot of the never Trumpers were trying to coalesce around Rubio to stop Trump. Uh, Trump ended up winning Virginia, not by a ton, but he won. And that was pretty much the end of the stop Trump movement. Well, yeah, it became, it became uh, Trump or Rubio. Then it became Trump or Cruz. Exactly. Then it became Trump or Kasich. Yep. And um, at that point, um, you know, and if, if you recall, you know, that Jack Cruz had even like, pretty much refused to endorse him at the convention. Yeah, correct. Um, you know, so, so, but, but, you know, at that point, you know, it became, you know, at that point, they all just accepted, you know, the uh, reality of it. Like, we're still never Trump to this day. Well, let me ask you about money. DeSantis is raising insane amounts of money. He's running for re-election uh, as governor of Florida, and he's already he's already raised one hundred and twenty five million dollars. A federal court ruled two weeks ago that he is permitted to spend 
whatever he doesn't spend on the gubernatorial race on a presumed uh, presidential race. So this has to put him head and shoulders above just about anybody else in the Republican Party in terms of a fundraising structure going into the 2024 um, election. Do you think 125 million plus what he's able to raise is enough to put him on par with Donald Trump where where he can carry out a fight against Donald Trump as the as the uh, primaries progress? Well, the thing is this. Um, the thing is this. At least half of that's going to be burnt on his gubernatorial reelect. That much? If not, at least at least half, if not more. Wow. That's the first point. The second point here is that um, that cash will have to be rolled into a super pack. Right. Which he will have no direct control over, per se, quote-unquote. Um, the third thing is that it's going to be the first time that we saw this particular structure, story, or um, game plan. Right, the rise existed. Right, the rise raised a hundred, like hundred twenty-five million dollars directly into it. Um, you know, the Al Cardness and crew, um, you know, had on hand the pretty much bankroll and support jet. Yeah. Um, I don't think, you know, in the Republican primary that has a Donald Trump on the ballot, um, money's going to be a factor because there's no amount of money that you could spend to, you know, counterweight Donald Trump being on the ballot. Do you think that there's any possibility at all that Donald Trump runs as an independent? Nope. He needs a Republican infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so, too. I thought so, too. I think the Republican Party has become Donald Trump and that it's just, I think as it stands now, and it's probably a temporary situation, but I think it's just an appendage of, of Donald Trump, at least structurally. 100%. I mean, look, look, large parts of the party still, you know, bound just to ring of Donald Trump. Um, you know, you have folks that are essentially the, the embodiment of the, of the T. Jake's video, the wake up, late up video. Yeah. Like Governor Hogan. Right. Um, but there's still large parts of this party that, that are just, you know, indebted to Donald Trump. Is there anybody in the Republican Party that you think has the charisma that Donald Trump does to who could take him on? I think, I think there are tons of folks, but it's not the charisma. I mean, the, the Trump folks are, are the Trump, the, the, it's essentially a cult of Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a cult of Trump. Um, it's not about charisma. It's not about what he's, it's not about you know, um, the ability to move people or anything like that. We have tons of folks that can move people. But the thing is this, is that there's a out-of-this-world uh, fealty and loyalty to Donald Trump. Yeah. From elected officials to, to super activists to his regular folks. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Let me ask you about uh, about Maryland. Governor Hogan, you mentioned Governor Hogan just a moment ago. Um, he's leaving office this year at least as popular as he was when he entered, probably more popular. Uh, he has his health back. He had a cancer scare a few years ago, and and uh, thank God he seems to be healthy. He's also not afraid to criticize Donald Trump. Um, do you see him as a viable alternative uh, in the primaries as you've got all these conservatives beating each other up about who's the alternative to Donald Trump? You've got a moderate in Governor Hogan who, you know, may have that central lane as uh, uh, to himself. What do you think? I, I, I 
absolutely, and I absolutely, and I think you know there also may be a level of home field advantage, you know, which of them decide to move there, you know, to reshape their primary calendar. Oh, good point. Yeah. How do you think that plays out then? I think Hogan probably, you know, Hogan himself on a ballot does pretty well. Um, I mean, the guy still carries, you know, 67% approval rate among Republicans, um, among Democrats across the board, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents across the board. And so um, I think think he does pretty well. Let's talk for a couple of minutes, too, about abortion. Uh, Immediately after the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, a lot of Democratic-leaning commentators were saying that this might be enough to swing the midterm elections, at least in the Senate, probably not in the House, uh, in in favor of Democrats. But then the latest polls that have come out from Harvard, The Economist, Emerson, all the big polls are saying that um, that it looks like the Supreme Court decision isn't really going to ha- be a factor in the way people vote. This is going to come down to turnout, and the Republicans are more energized than the Democrats uh, to vote in this midterm. Uh, what do you think the role is of the abortion decision in the midterms? And um, what do you think of the Democrats' abilities to hold on to the Senate? Well, the thing is this. Something where... Pretty much 86, 70, 80% of the country agrees on should be a winning issue for you. Yeah. Issue Democrats have is that they overcomplicate the issue of abortion when it comes to communicating about the issue of abortion. Mm-hmm. And it's in those details and that minutia that Republicans will come in and beat you over the head. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the issue there. Yeah, this should be a winning issue. This should be something that helps carry Democrats across the finish line and uh, up and down about it. But the issue is that you know, they get lost in the minutia of it and, and the minutia of how to communicate with communi- communicating it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other to, to the other question, um, I think Dems, I think the Dems probably do, you know, hold the Senate and actually, you know, grab two or three seats so that Manchin and Senate don't aren't, aren't hold them hostage anymore. I've been saying the same thing for months. I've been saying exactly the same thing for months. If you look at the generic uh, polls for the House, uh, the Republicans are ahead between anywhere between one and 12 percentage points, which because of redistricting means a Republican pickup of roughly 10 to 25 seats. The Democrats can't keep the House. The numbers just aren't there. The Senate is entirely different because the Democrats are doing well in Pennsylvania and they're doing well in Wisconsin. And depending on turnout and, you know, developments between now and uh, and November, they ought to be able to hold on to places like New Hampshire and uh, Nevada. So I, th- I think you're right. I think that the House is a loss for the Democrats, but the Democrats could pick up two or three Senate seats and then push Joe Manchin aside and say that they just don't don't need him, or at least they don't need to pander to him anymore. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. But I'll, but I'll also say this. I'll also say that, um, and let's say a place like Pennsylvania, Yeah. Um, you know, a John Fetterman could, you know, be responsible for an extra congressional future. Oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I could see that happening. He, yeah. He's immensely popular. 
He really is. Actually, and that leads to another question that I have for you about Doug Mastriano, the the Republican nominee for for governor. You know, the Democrats have this what what seems to me is this insane policy of trying to promote extremist uh, Republicans running for these major issues with the idea that they're so extreme that when it comes to the to the general election, they'll be easier to beat. And then they start doing well in the polls. And Doug Mastriano, as crazy as he might be, he has a shot of becoming the governor of Pennsylvania. Uh, what do you think of this strategy? The Democrats have been doing it in a half a dozen states, at least, in races that that are pretty important. I'm talking about governors and U.S. senators. Yeah, look, the DGA has spent a million dollars on the Maryland School of Charter Races support, you know, extremely stand cops. A race is extremely stand cops. If I'm them, I'd probably do the same thing. I mean, look, Doug Mestriano is unpalatable. Dan Cox is unpalatable. Um, and look, what it becomes is this, you know, especially when you have somewhere like Pennsylvania or Maryland where the numbers are there to just bring right. out your people. Um, you know, at that point, it's just a turnout game. And, right. you know, the thing is this, when when, when Pennsylvania Dems turn out their, their numbers, you know, they do well. Um, you know, they do well, at least the statewide races. Um, you know, the legislature is going to be the legislature because of the lines drawn and gerrymandering. But, you know, when they when they turn out, they do well. Now, what we've shown here in Maryland is that, you know, if you can, you know, provide a palatable candidate, you know, one more time, Republicans have won three of the last five gubernatorial elections in the state of Maryland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it becomes if you can provide a, a palatable candidate, um, you know, Voters will cross over and voters will, will give them a shot. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Mastriano, you know, yeah, I, don't, I don't think it's anywhere near the governor's mansion. Um, I think he probably gets, you know, uh, probably gets closer to the, the state pen to Penn State. Yeah, I think you're right. Let me ask you briefly, too, about uh, Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> um, Doug Ducey, the governor, and uh, Attorney General Mark uh, Burnovich want to reinstate this 158-year-old law that bans abortion. It, it declares that anyone who facilitates an abortion causing a miscarriage um, is in violation of the law. It makes no exceptions for rape or incest. Uh, the state legislature has already passed a 15-week ban. Um, Arizona is a pretty sophisticated political state. Does, does this does this thing stay in place? Is this going to be fought in the state legislature? Is it going to be fought in the courts? What happens in a place like Arizona where the state has changed pretty dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years and uh, they're relying on a 158-year-old law? I think it stays in place. Mm-hmm. I mean, the numbers just aren't there to overturn it. Um, you may have a governor. You may, you may. I mean, they, they, if they nominate Carrie Lake, you may end up with a dim governor, right? Um, that will just say, I'm just not going to enforce it. Um, but you can't necessarily rely on that long term, right? So what's going to end up coming down to is, you know, whatever, you know, Dems is, you know, Dems happen to hold the house, which absolutely look fundraising is is is, is off the charts right now. But if Dems happen to hold the house. And um, and uh, extend their their margin in the Senate. 
And yeah, I mean, look, come January, we could be having a completely different conversation on abortion. Yeah. Well, we will absolutely have you back before January because there's going to be an awful lot to talk about. So thank you for joining us, Eugene Craig. Eugene is a Republican strategist. He's a grassroots activist, and he's the former vice chair of the Maryland Republican Party. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take that last short break and come back. politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we have a few last stories to slide in. I think I didn't get to the Dwayne The Rock Johnson story I'm yesterday. I'm fascinated but by this story. I think How delightful would it be to discover that you're half-siblings with The Rock? Not even for, like, <laughs> fortune or reflected fame. No, a little bit for the reflected fame. Just for the coolness fame. factor. Yeah, just like, oh, I bet he's a great half-brother. The Rock is... Uh, you, you won't. You can't dislodge the genuinely warm feelings oh, I, I have for The Rock from my heart. You I got to tell you, I, I met him a Did few years see? ago. Oh, um, I went out to L.A. What? and my agent uh, set up a meeting with him and his agent because I had a show that I wanted to pitch. Mm-hmm. And we were deep enough in the show that it was ready, you know, to to bring in the talent to mm-hmm. see if they were interested. He wasn't Is interested. The show Meet My Friend Michelle. <laughs> Is that the show? <laughs> Michelle. He could not possibly have been any nicer. I knew it. There is nothing about fame that has affected him. He's funny and friendly and warm and kind, and he loves his kids, and he's just an all-around good guy. Yeah, now he's got a few more half-siblings out there in the world, thanks uh, to—I don't know if it's specifically 23andMe, but it's one of those (laughs) DNA DNA web tests. I think that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. No, John, you've got a story you wanted to talk about. I have some other stuff I can. Yeah. You. you know, I've been following very closely for the past several weeks, this terrible incident that happened in New York City where um, where the an employee in a bodega uh, was involved in an altercation. A, 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 the boyfriend of a customer attacked him and uh, and the guy defended himself mm-hmm. and uh, was able to to kill the attacker while being stabbed by the attacker's girlfriend. And the whole thing is on video. Like every second of it is on security camera video. Um, it's clearly self-defense. Yeah. And so for whatever reason, Alvin Bragg, the DA filed murder charges against this guy. And there have been demonstrations and protests. And finally last week on Monday, Bragg, who's the DA, met with a group of community leaders and um, said he made the oddest statement. He said he could absolutely he, he could absolutely see these charges being dropped. Well, then why the freg would you file them in the first place? Right. Well, today he dropped the charges. So finally, yeah, sanity reigns. Yeah, I have to say, and this is probably extremely unrealistic, but every sort of um, mental, you know, rehearsal. Of what happens if somebody—I uh, shouldn't even say this. I'm going to knock on wood. But if I were to be violently attacked, it always ends up with me defending myself on a on a murder charge, saying it was self. Oh yeah. You might as well believe in yourself, even if it's you have a little to. bit unrealistic. Yeah, you know, to. I have a lot of 
rage I could draw on, I think. Oh, me too. <laughs> oh, somebody's going down. Yes. And I'm pretty confident it's not going to be me. One day, try me, please. <laughs> I'm tired of having to be nice to people all the time. Uh, I have a couple of little updates. Uh, I don't know if you got this up, um, alert in your inbox, John, but you see the U.S. is changing its Afghan visa program. Yes. So uh, to commemorate, what, a year since the withdrawal, they're simplifying and streamlining the, streamlining the application process. Uh, and so now applicants will not need to fill out some longer form. So I don't remember how many thousand Afghans it is who are still stuck in this uh, tent city right. in the UAE. Right. Um, but it's a lot. It's and a I lot. Did see and it's it, miserable. Some CNN headline. Uh, I believe it's CNN. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Biden administration struggling with how to mark anniversary of chaotic Afghanistan yeah. withdrawal. They, I don't pretend know. it didn't happen. Yeah. Do you have to mark it? Or I know you could mark it by unfreezing the, what, $7 billion of uh, foreign of their assets money. of Afghanistan. That's that, right. That so they can deal with up. these issues of starvation that yes. they're facing now. Yeah, yeah that would yeah, be nice. Maybe you, could, uh, maybe you could ship a whole bunch of food to Afghanistan. And, you know, another thing, too, we've talked a lot, not just on this show, but as a country, we've talked a lot about the heroin uh, crop, mm-hmm. the heroin poppy crop in Afghanistan, that that Afghanistan was producing 93 percent of the world's heroin poppy uh, while the U.S. backed government was in power. Mm-hmm. Well, now the uh, the Taliban have issued a, a, a fatwa that it is um, it is a sin to produce heroin poppy. Mm-hmm. Now, the year before the 9-11 attacks, there was zero uh, heroin produced in Afghanistan. So maybe we can get back there, too. Yeah. Yeah. There is also a story uh, about Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil uh, had calling together dozens of foreign diplomats to the presidential palace. This was yesterday to tell them this is according uh, to DNYUZ. DNYUZ. I've never said that out loud. It's a news organization. Uh, but he'd call them together to tell them uh, he thinks the, the voting systems in the country could be rigged and aren't necessarily <laughs> trustworthy, right? Uh, There's an election uh, a little more than two months away, and he's trying to, you know, it's the like, oh, my arm hurts, so maybe I'm not right. going to climb that well today. Right. I, however, the story came to my attention because the person who reported it uh, noted that Hours before his meeting in person, inside with dozens of ambassadors, uh, Bolsonaro had admitted to not feeling well, that he had a fever and was coughing a lot. Oh. And so, <laughs> it's just like the, the, the ailments of this man are just— On top uh, of being stabbed I mean, during the campaign. Stabbed, attacked by an emu. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Attacked sure. by a, a big bird. And they can do damage. Had COVID several times. Uh-huh. Uh, had to go to the hospital because he yeah. was like his, dangerously constipated. He was, something like, like that. Yeah. It was in his it was in his guts. And then yeah. of course they keep saying it's because he like didn't chew his shrimp up enough at lunch. <laughs> this is being this is a that's a social media um, <laughs> tidbit, right? So you take that with a tiny grain of salt. That probably is true, but I didn't confirm it. Yeah. So Bolsonaro coughing all over these uh, diplomats as he tries to set the stage for. Uh, you know, contesting that election, perhaps. Good luck. Yeah. I think Lula's going to just whip him. Yeah, I might roll over him. Hey, uh, I don't know if you saw your uh, breaking news uh, push notifications. But Explosion Bill, at the Hoover Dam? No, I, I, I want to hear all about that. But Bill de Blasio just dropped out of his race for Congress. He said I forgot, that— uh, I forgot that he was even— <laughs> 
Voters seem to want a different option. Yeah. Is what he said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think they do. Goodbye, Bill. Right. No, there. I mean, there is pretty uh, dramatic video of this explosion at the dam that is uh, going around social media now. It seems to have been, despite generating a whole bunch of smoke, um, initial stories are calling it a small explosion and a fire and that it poses no threat to the dam structure. Good. Uh, but it looks like some, you know— piece of machinery there exploded. It was while a bunch of tourists were walking around. And so that's why we have this. Oh, I see. Yeah. This video of it. Yeah. Yeah. Explosion of the Hoover Dam yeah, is not, big... not an alert you really want to see. No. Um, and it says it's been extinguished. Yeah. So, the fire's like, been extinguished. Like our, our hopes. Uh, We also have a pair of a pair of unsurprising, I guess, uh, reports. I think it was last week I saw this report on alcohol. Uh, that found alcohol has no no health benefits if you're under 40. Like it's straight only negative to drink under 40. But if you're over 40, uh, you know a little bit of that that glass of red wine. Maybe it's good for for your heart. Just a sort of uh, suck it, youngsters. Yeah, the, the leave, friend, leave the, the drinking to the grown ups. There yeah. you go. And now uh, another report showing um, drinking drinking coffee might be a little bit good for you. So maybe we'll elaborate on on that more tomorrow because we certainly don't have time today. But so there you go, some good news and some bad news. Finally. We're going to leave that there today for Political Misfits. I want to say thanks to all of our guests, of course, and to our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow.